Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. In this way, the apostle begins his letter to the Hebrews. And like every good preacher, he lays the foundation for the overall argument of his letter right there in his opening sentence. And these last days, the apostle wants us to know, the last days that have been brought about by Jesus, by his life, death, and incarnation, his life, death, and resurrection, God has spoken to his people in a fundamentally new and different way, a better way, for he has now revealed himself to them fully and completely in his Son. This Son, the Apostle proclaims, is the heir of all things from his Father. Indeed, it was by this eternally begotten Son that God created everything and laid the foundations of the world itself. This Son, the Apostle tells us, is the radiance of God's own glory. He is the exact imprint of his Father's nature. He is the perfect image of God, of his Father. And he rules over all things now in his ascension to heaven such that the universe itself and everything in it is being constantly upheld by nothing less than the word of his power. The stars hang in the sky. The planets rotate around the sun because he wills it to be so. In his ascension, the apostle argues, God's eternal and now incarnate son has affected the purification of sin. And he has been elevated as a man, as the God-man in his humanity over the angels themselves. And the rest of the letter is a working out of this argument regarding the primacy and the significance of God's true Son, Jesus. One of the central features of the apostles' argument throughout the letter to the Hebrews is the importance of Jesus' divinity as well as his incarnation, that he is the God-man. He is both God and man completely at the same time. Jesus, the apostle tells us, is without beginning or end. He is fully God. And yet because we share in flesh and blood, he also has now partaken of these very same things. He has bound himself to our flesh, and to our nature for the rest of eternity, so that we might always be united to him as our elder brother. He has done this so that we might be part of the family of God. Jesus, indeed, Hebrews tells us, he was made like us in every way. He can sympathize with our weaknesses and our temptations because he knows these things from the inside. He knows them intimately, He experienced in time and space real human weakness. He experienced real human temptation. He experienced real human limitation. And because of these things, because of this experiential knowledge, Jesus is uniquely suited, the apostle says, to be our eternal high priest. And indeed, it was for this reason 
that Jesus was incarnate, that he lived a perfect life, that he died an innocent death, that he was raised from the dead in glory and honor, that he might ascend to heaven for us, that he would go there for us on our behalf so that we might now draw near to the true presence of God with absolute faith and complete confidence that the holy place, God's own presence, is a place where we are now actually welcome. In the past days, the apostle tells us in this letter, the high priests of Israel were deficient for two reasons. One, they sinned, and two, they died. But Jesus, he says, is not like that. He is innocent, sinless, and holy, and he does not die. He lives now forever with the power of an indestructible life in the words of the apostle. And thus he is able to save to the uttermost all who draw near to God through him. In this way, the apostle compares Jesus to a steadfast and powerful anchor for our souls. Those are the, that's the language he uses in chapter 6. He says that, that Jesus, having gone up into God's presence as the God-man, now holds us fast to God. He keeps us anchored to God. He refuses to let us go and his power to both save us and to keep us for God is without limitation at all because his blood has fully and permanently atoned for our sin in a way that the blood of animals could never effect or perform. There is no sin you could Commit, the apostle argues, that could defeat the atoning power of the blood of the Son of God. And so, the apostle says, Jesus is not only an anchor for our souls, he is also now the new and living way into God's presence, into the true holy of holies that the temple was only a very imperfect imitation of, into heaven itself. Jesus is a way into heaven itself. And when we approach God through Jesus, we can do so in confidence and with faith. For our union with him has made us righteous and holy before God completely. And the apostle argues that this is the reason. It's because of all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ the new way of life he has given us, the new access to himself. This is the reason, he says, that we must now persevere. Hebrews is not only about the work of Christ, it is also about the calling of the Christian life. And that calling is one of perseverance. Perseverance primarily in faith and obedience and holiness. The stakes could not be higher, according to the Apostle. Hebrews is not only full of dramatic pictures of the beauty and glory and majesty of the Son of God, it is also full of very sober warnings and straightforward exhortations to those who are baptized in His name. Again and again, the apostle hammers home this point. Because of the supremacy of Christ, we who belong to Him must endure in faith and obedience. We must not shrink back We must keep pressing forward. And in fact, he reminds us as we go about this calling that all of us, all of those who are with us 
on this journey of faith and obedience are not only the living members of the church today, but actually all of God's people from the very beginning of history itself. They are with us on this journey of obedience and faith. Even now, surrounding us, just as the deceased members of this particular congregation surround us today. They are like a great crowd of cloud of witnesses, a great crowd of witnesses as well, um, beginning with Adam and continuing forward as we fix our eyes now on Jesus, as we endure even the loving discipline of the Father, as we come to Mount Zion itself in our worship, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, offering God our reverent worship with all. Thus far, the argument in Hebrews through the first 12 chapters. And now, this morning, we begin to take up chapter 13 after a three-month break for the summer as we were in the Psalms. Chapter 13 is easily recognized as a significant shift in the rhetoric and argument of this letter. You can see that easily. For 12 chapters, the the apostle has given us complex and riveting theological argument. Hebrews is well known uh, for its density, for the the, the complexity of what the the apostle is doing. It's it's filled with dramatic and powerful images, with stirring phrases, with sort of an epic scope. But here, in chapter 13, the apostle's instruction becomes very simple. And straightforward. Let brotherly love continue, he says. Show hospitality. Remember those who are in prison. Honor the marriage bed. Ensure that it is undefiled. Keep your life free from love of money. Be content with what God has given you. Remember your leaders and obey them. Don't be led astray by diverse and strange teachings. Pray for us, he says. It would be easy to skim through chapter 13 to to see it as kind of an unimportant appendix to the remarkable theology and rhetoric of the first 12 chapters of this letter. But I think that would be a mistake. For it is here that the apostle spells out for his readers the holiness of the life for which they must strive. It is here that the apostle defines the particular actions, the particular practices and habits that must characterize those who are to persevere in faith and obedience, which is the point of the letter to the Hebrews. And so over the next um, two months, we're going to take our time with Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to consider these instructions in some amount of detail. These particular exhortations, these particular imperatives are important to the apostles. They're not chosen randomly or scattershot. They are important. They're they're specific. They are quite literally the conclusion of his letter, the conclusion of his argument. And so we're going to seek to give these commands the attention and reflection they deserve. We begin today with the first verse of Hebrews 13. Just one verse. I'll read also the last two verses of Hebrews 12 to give us the context. Listen now, friends, to God's holy and inerrant word. The apostle writes and says, Therefore, let us be grateful 
for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Listen to that again. Let brotherly love continue. Thus far, the reading of God's word, it is absolutely true. And it is given to you because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be found pleasing and acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Beloved, what is it that you want out of your life? What is it you want? Whatever years lie before you, assuming your eternal future is secure, assuming that in the resurrection of the dead, your self-same body will be raised from the ground and reunited with your soul, and you will be given eternal life forevermore. Assuming all that, what is it that you want to experience or to accomplish in whatever years remain for you in this mortal life as you look forward to the resurrection of the dead? How you think about and answer that question is incredibly important because it gives a kind of direction for your life, for your decisions. Most of us have some kind of desire in that way. All of us do, of course. A vision for what we want our life to be. But I wonder how often we really try to articulate it or put words to it or name what it is actually that we're shooting for. All of us are aiming toward something, although many of us, I think, don't always have a clear idea of what that something is. What is it that we're actually trying to do with the next years that we have, the rest of the time the Lord gives us? Maybe our vision for our life is just to get married or to stay married, to buy a home, to raise a family. Maybe it's to see our children grow up and to have the opportunity to know and love our grandchildren, and if the Lord gives us the years, our great-grandchildren as well. Maybe it's as simple as that. Maybe our our vision is to accomplish certain things in our careers, in our professional life, in in um, in the ways, in the work that we have. Maybe it's to write a book, right, to get a book published and out there in the world. Maybe it's to achieve a certain level of success or renown or influence. Most of us, I think, want to make some kind of mark on the world in this kind of way. Uh, Maybe our vision for our life is simply to be happy. I just want to be happy and secure and to have enough money at the end to leave a little bit to my descendants. Now, those things are all fine as far as they go. Don't Get me wrong, there's certainly nothing, nothing, nothing wrong with family or happiness or success or achievement or even wealth. Those are good things for human beings to aim for, to accomplish and experience in the short time that is given to us. But still, friend, when I ask you that question, when I ask you what it is that you want out of your life, I hope there is at least some part of you that leaps up in response and says, 
holiness. That's what I want. I hope there's some part of you that says, I want to be holy. What I want more than anything else is that I could become just as holy as I possibly could in this life. Whatever degree of holiness God has for me, I want to match that. I want to hit it. Yes, I know I'll always be a sinner. And whatever holiness I have in this life will always be limited by my sin. But still, I want purity of heart. What I want more than anything else in this world is to yield the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Right? Just as much love and joy and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control as I can possibly yield. I hope that's at least part of the equation for you, friends, in terms of what you want out of this life. I hope that when you think about what you want out of your life, that holiness is at least on your radar as something that you might strive for, something that you might aim for, something that you might set your life upon. In fact, friends, I would suggest that there is nothing more glorious for a human being in this mortal life than to be made holy. I have known several people who fit this description, and they were glorious. They were not, by and large, well-known. They were mostly anonymous, but they were glorious. There was a weightiness about them, a steadfastness, a wisdom. There is nothing more remarkable in this life than a person who has been made holy. And I would argue that there is nothing more worth dedicating our lives to experiencing than holiness, maturity in Christ, being made like Jesus himself. Better, I say to you, to be holy than to be happy in the years that remain. Better to be holy than to have a family or a spouse. Better to be holy than to be successful in your career or your profession to achieve your dreams. Better to be holy than to accumulate wealth and to have a great deal to leave to the next generation. Better by far to be holy. I say this because here in this chapter, we get a vision of what it means to be made holy according to the apostle of our Lord. He describes holiness for us here, what it looks like. And the apostle's instruction begins with the simplest of commands. He says, let brotherly love continue. That's where he begins with the description of a holy life. Let brotherly love continue. Here the apostle is echoing the teaching of Jesus himself who left his disciples as we heard earlier this morning before his death with a very simple and very costly command. Love one another, he said to them. As I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Jerome, the the fourth century theologian, he tells a story about the apostle John whose gospel records those words, of course. John, he says, at the end of his life was old and frail. He was unable to walk. And so his 
disciples would carry him into the gathering of believers each Lord's Day. And every week he would say these words to the congregation. This would be his sermon, so to speak. He would say, little children love one another. Little children love one another, John would say. This went on week after week, Jerome says, until at last more than a little weary of these repeated words, the simplicity of the sermon. His disciples asked him, Master, why do you always say this? Because, John replied, it is the Lord's command. And if only this is done, it is enough. Let brotherly love continue, the apostle says. Love one another, our Lord Jesus says. It is the Lord's command, friends. And if it is done, it is enough. What is the kind of love that our Lord Jesus calls us to? That the apostle instructs us to continue in? It's a bit of a shame, I think, that 1 Corinthians 13 has been sort of co-opted by all the marriage books. um, Because there's no indication um, that Paul is particularly thinking about love between a husband and wife. Um, when he writes these words in 1 Corinthians 13. I mean, certainly they apply in marriage, but that's not the context. No, he's actually describing love that should be characteristic of all Christians who are in the body for one another. The body of Christ is what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 12, the chapter that's the context um, for his words in chapter 13. And he describes that love that is to be present in the body of Christ for one another in this way. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is the kind of holiness that we're called to in the church, beloved. This is the kind of love that we're to remain in together with one another. It's a love that considers our neighbor in the church better than ourselves. Their needs more important than ours. Remember, when Jesus chose to give a a living picture of this kind of love that he wanted us to extend to others in the body, he chose an act of menial service. That's what he chose. You see, in the ancient world, no one paid any attention to who was washing people's feet. We read John 13 and we think, well, Jesus chose this like profound and heroic thing to demonstrate the love that we're to have for one another. He washed his disciples' feet. But that's, that's not what Jesus is doing here. That's not the point at all. It's not the heroism. It's the menialness of it. It's the humility of it. The anonymity of it. If a servant washed your feet, you didn't even think about him. It's just what they were doing. It was their job. You barely even noticed that person. Washing a guest's feet was a menial, humble act of service. It was barely worth commenting on. And that, Jesus says, is how we're to love one another. To put others before ourselves to elevate others' needs above our own, to be humble and patient and kind and to endure all things, but to do so in a way, here's the key, that doesn't win any awards. 
that barely draws any attention to ourselves at all. To love those around us in a church so well that they hardly even notice that it's happening. That they almost take us for granted. That's holiness, according to Jesus. That's love. That's the kind of love with which we are to love one another. Now, you might say, well, I can imagine loving my family that way. Certainly, there's a lot of that kind of love in a healthy family, things that are never fully appreciated or noticed by those who receive them. At least I can imagine attempting that kind of love in my marriage or for my children or with my siblings or my parents. But just like a fellow Christian, right, my fellow church member, even people I barely know or people that just get on my nerves because they're so different than I am? I'm supposed to love them like that? Friends, here's where the apostle hits us hard. Remember, the command is let brotherly love continue. But he's not talking about family units here, right? The apostle means the family of God. Here in the church, as he has said earlier in his letter, you are holy brothers and sisters of one another. You have been joined into a new family by God's Son. And now you're to love one another as though you are family. Because that's what you are. A deeper and richer and truer family even than the one you were born into. And notice what the Apostle says about the duration of this love that we're called to in the church. This love that is at the heart of what it means to be holy and conformed to the image of Jesus. Let brotherly love continue, he says. This kind of love is not a calling for a moment. It's not some great, non-repeatable, heroic act of service. No, this is the quality of our lives, the apostle says. And that's the most costly thing about love. right? Not just living in it occasionally or for a week, but for months and years and decades. This is to be the characteristic of our heart and our actions all of our lives. Let brotherly love continue. This is the holiness to which we are called. So how do we do this? As we conclude this morning, how how can we do this? The secret to that question is hidden in the original command given by Jesus. It's right there in plain sight, but we have to think about it for a minute. Jesus, when he instructed his disciples about brotherly love, he told them, love one another. As I have loved you, you also are to love one another. As I have loved you, Jesus says, so you also are to love one another. And then he went out into the night and was betrayed and arrested and stripped and beaten and hanged on a cross and tortured to death that his friends might live and never die. Consider, friend, for a moment how Jesus has loved you. How he has loved you all of your life from before you were even born. He has loved you. Consider the patience that your Lord Jesus has shown to you. The gentleness with which he has borne 
your inadequacies, your selfishness, your irritability, your sin, even your rejection of his love. Consider the faithfulness by which Jesus has loved you, friend. How he has never forsaken you. Not once has he turned away. Even when you pushed him away from you. Even when you had had enough, still he did not forsake you. Consider the strength with which Jesus has loved you, friend. Consider how he has forgiven your sins. He has cleansed them with his own blood. He has delivered you from the power of the fear of death by his rising from the dead. Consider how Jesus has defeated Satan and brought you into his kingdom. Consider how he has pledged and promised himself to raise you from the dead on the last day. This is how Jesus has loved us. Surely a love like this demands our everything, our constant gratitude, our constant affection. But even here we fall short, right? There are days that go by when we hardly think about the love of Jesus at all, right? Just be honest. It barely crosses our mind sometimes. In fact, it's fair to say that there is nothing in the world that we take so much for granted in our flesh as the constant, steadfast, always continuing love of Jesus for us. But still, he loves you. Still, he loves me. Even all the ways we don't even fully appreciate his love, still, he loves us, even in our blindness toward him. Jesus loves you, friend. He does not grow weary of interceding for you at his Father's right hand. He does not grow impatient forgiving your sins, even the ones you commit again and again. He does not stop loving you or serving you or keeping you as the apple of his eye, hiding you under the shadow of his wings. Beloved, this is the kind of love that will make us holy. This is the only kind of love that will make us holy. Only being loved by Jesus will transform us into those who actually love one another. Those in whom brotherly love continues. And the good news is that this is exactly what Jesus has promised to do for you, friend. All the days of your life, He has promised to love you and to lead you and to make you holy even like unto himself. Little children, love one another. It is the Lord's command, and if it is done, it is enough. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.